Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is Tallulah. She's a member of Smart Recovery Australia, and she'll be talking about how Smart Recovery Approach has helped her with her recovery from reliance on alcohol. So welcome to the show, Tallulah. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. We usually talk about what influenced you as you were growing up and when you were exposed to alcohol and where that took you before you sought recovery. Uh, So would you like to start by giving us an insight into your early childhood, family life? Yeah, absolutely. So... I grew up in Africa where very much like Australia, the drinking culture is very prevalent, the norm. I was exposed to quite a bit of trauma as a young child. So I think that that probably added to it. But my parents were farmers. They drank a lot. That's how they socialised, you know, weddings, funerals, sports, uh, drop of a hat, really. Um was was when everybody drank so I was very exposed to that and we used to have a lot of parties in homes because we didn't we lived out in the farming community and uh, obviously we didn't really have lots of restaurants in our little village to go to so it was very normal to have quite large sort of drinking events and dinners and that kind of thing growing up and then I was at boarding school so when at boarding school you kind of really just do what everyone else is doing And at about 14, I think we probably started all the usual shenanigans that kids do in their teenage years and, you know, raiding our parents' booze cabinets and smoking cigarettes and bringing all of those back to school to to utilise. So we used to do a lot of that. And then really that just kind of rolled into my 20s and sort of... a few fairly traumatic life events uh, through my teens as well, which meant I didn't go to university as I had planned. And I went and I, I did a secretarial course and I absolutely hated it. But it was easy for me to just go and sort of drown my sorrows and, and put that all away with a bottle, really. And then I moved to the UK in my 20s and it was the very much the underground rave scene so I got stuck into a lot of drugs and alcohol as well and at about 25 I started to feel really quite sorry for myself and I was not feeling great my health wasn't great my mental health was in an awful place and I went to go and see a doctor in London and I said to her look these are the things I've been doing I feel a bit crazy and she sent me off for a whole set of blood tests and it came back that I had very mild, uh, what she said at the time was very mild cirrhosis of the liver at 25 years old. So that was pretty much a showstopper for me for a little while. I uh, then started to move into AA and I went to a few meetings <clears throat> at 25 and I just didn't feel like I fit at all. I couldn't relate to the people um, I really just felt very sorry for myself and I just wanted to be normal like everyone else. And from there, uh, I think I just kind of backed away because I thought, how can I be going to AA at 25? This is ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with my drinking. Everyone drinks the same way. And it was just kind of normal for us to just annihilate ourselves on a regular basis. So, you know, that's just what we did. It was, it was silly. We, we worked hard and we partied hard. And that was our mantra, really. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, when you look back? It really is. I think of all the money, Bill, that I could have saved and bought a house in my early 20s, and I didn't. I either drank it or put it up my nose. 
Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I'll take you back to, to sort of family. So what was it like growing up uh, in your family? So my early childhood was quite traumatic. I had a very violent biological father. So that was very difficult. But then my mum met another very beautiful man and they, and they got married. And I had an absolutely wonderful childhood. So I think a lot about whether the trauma of my early childhood pushed me into drinking. And I just can't quite say that it was definitely that because I had a really blessed teenage life. Yeah. So what about friendships? Friendships were very transient because we moved a lot. So we went to lots of different schools and we moved countries a couple of times. Funnily enough, it was in my 20s that I really solidified some very strong friendships that I still have now. So those are sort of 25-year friendships, which is wonderful. And I've just recently regrouped with all of my old school friends, which has been lovely. You know, the beauty of social media and bringing people back together. So. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. And it's interesting because I actually realized that I was closer to them than I thought I was to my old school friends. That's been a really interesting revelation. So did you have particularly close friendships in boarding school? I imagine you would have. Yes, I did. But again, you know, we sort of hit the boarding school two years after everyone else. So everyone had kind of formed their bonds and had their besties. So yes, I did form some very close relationships, but I always kind of felt a bit of an outsider, always felt on the peripheral, not quite fitting in. I wasn't a terribly attractive child. So um, I always felt a little bit sort of out on the outside, which I found really difficult. So I developed terrible social anxiety. And I think that's one of the reasons that I used to drink so much as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty common, particularly people going through adolescence. It's a very isolating time and they tend to reach out for something to make it a bit more, <laughs> a bit more manageable. So what about with your siblings? Did you have a good relationship with them? That is a really interesting question. And I've got four sisters. I grew up in the same house as one of them. And our relationship is a love-hate relationship at the best of times. And even now, we still have these almighty blow-ups. We actually had to be separated at school in terms of we went to different high schools in the end, different boarding high schools as well. So I think that there's quite a bit of trauma around being separated from my sister. But in the same token, I don't think anyone could handle us together, to be perfectly honest. So that was quite difficult. Yeah. So did you get on with the others? Okay. I do, but none of us grew up in the same household. So we all are just really good friends as opposed to really that proper sibling relationship, I think. Yeah. So going out to work then, did you find your drinking was a problem during the week or could you sort of manage it on weekends? It was originally weekends. You know, we'd always have Friday night drinks. And because I did a sort of secretarial type role, I was always responsible for organising drinks and organising events at the time. And then the London scene was very much about Sunday sessions. So that happened quite a lot. Sometimes didn't turn up for work on a Monday but I counted that by doing lots of contract work. So essentially what I worked out is that within about six months, people would start to cotton on to my problem. And that was when I jumped ship. So I would then move on to my next contract with just enough time for them to reference me positively. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, when you have these awful afflictions, you just come up with the biggest range of nonsense to get yourself out of trouble. And that was one of mine. I hadn't thought of that in a long time, actually. Yeah, the things you do, that's right. Could you get close to people at work or only the people who you socialised with? That's a really good question. No, I think I could get close to most people. The ones that I didn't connect with, I might connect with over a drink and I would just give up trying after that, to be honest. Um, it was all too hard. If I, if I couldn't connect with them one-to-one -one straight up, and I couldn't connect with them over drinking, then I just didn't see the point. It was a very selfish, one-sided relationship, to be honest. It's a typical drinker's relationship, though. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So what about your mum? Was she concerned about your drinking? 
My mum has been concerned about my drinking for many, many years. My grandmother and my great-grandmother were both very significant alcoholics. Okay. Yeah. So did you see any of that when you were growing up? I saw my granny. My, she used to pop lots of pink and blue tranquilizers and then sort of wash them down with brandy. But she was always very glamorous and she had one of those beautiful, or I thought it was beautiful as a child, long pipes that she used to smoke her cigarettes with. And she was, you know, beautifully made up. And I just sort of thought that she was such a positive influence in my life. But my grandfather was a commercial pilot. And this is going back years ago. So you can imagine she would have lived a very lonely life. So she drank a lot and a lot more than I think I, I, I ever realised. But, yeah, I absolutely adored her. But I do recollect some pretty horrendous arguments between her and my mum. And, you know, my mum, being a single mum, often had to leave my sister and I with her, which obviously was fraught with danger now that I think back on it. But what else was she to do? Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult situation, that's for sure. It's a really difficult situation. But my mum remembers my great-grandmother. They lived in Africa and my great-grandmother often had to be, particularly after 11s and, and gin time, had to be kind of moved away from the rest of the, the family and put to bed on a, almost a daily basis. So my mum tells me stories now and you just realise that it's so genetically inherent, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's a mixture. In Al-Anon and AA, they talk about it being a family disease. And I think alcoholic families breed alcoholics. Totally agree. Uh, Whether it's genetic or not, there is that wrapping people in in that alcoholic denial and dispute and uh, dysfunction and all those things just confuses kids for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And actually, that's one of the, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but it's one of the reasons I stopped is because... For me, the buck stops with me, with my kids. Enough is enough. We've got to stop glamorizing what we do to ourselves and letting our children know that it's normal because it's actually not. No, not at all. Yeah. So getting to relationships then, alcohol makes it easier and harder in relationships, uh, makes it easier to get into a relationship, but harder to maintain it. So yeah. what was that like for you growing up you know, in your teens and early 20s? My father was a massive drinker. So for me, I kind of modelled the whole drinking situation and relationships around drinking around my parents' relationships. So to me, that was completely normal. I had a couple of really lovely long-term partners in my late teens. And then throughout my 20s, I was not successful in creating relationships at all. I had this amazing group of friends, though. So, you know, it's almost a codependent type situation between flat sharers and everyone away from home so I didn't really think about that too much because often if there was a problem someone would pick me up off the floor or dust me off or kind of put me back into shape I randomly got married when I was 25 amazingly yeah biggest mistake of my life I have no idea why I did it it was just something we just went to Oh, I feel embarrassed even telling you about this. This is ridiculous. We went to the courthouse when I was on holiday back in my home country and we just got married. And I think about it now and I think, who in their right mind just goes and marries someone when they're on holiday? I mean, I barely even knew the guy. I think about it now and I just think it's madness, absolute madness. And of course, what happened was that we realised not long after that we weren't in love. Yeah, that we were, there was no reason for us to be married. I mean, it's just the most ludicrous thing to do. Anyway, that's what I did at 25 because I was so desperate to have someone love me for me and the whole relationship, it's mortifying to even think about now. Um, But then my lovely husband uh, in my early 30s and we were both drinkers and that's what we used to do together we used to have a lot of fun and then it wasn't fun can I just take you back to talk about how you met your husband I met him at a party actually I was living with a girl and she kept on telling me that I was going to meet this wonderful person that was a friend of hers and 
I had just been going through all of these, internet dating had just become a thing. So I had met all these, what I thought were lovely men that really just uh, didn't treat me very well. But I was in such a self-harming cycle that I didn't even realise that the men that I was trying to date just weren't good for me. And it, and then I would end up drunk and then they wouldn't want to see me again. And then I would become all crazy and needy. Like, it was just such a horrible cycle of behaviour. Anyway, she told me I was going to meet this lovely man and I literally had broken up with someone the morning before and yeah, I did meet him and he was just delightful and he was just the sweetest person and just an all-round really nice guy. So we got together and it was a lot of fun at first and he kind of, I think he probably tamed me for a few months and then we decided to go overseas. So we got our visa papers together and we went back to the UK and we hit the global financial crisis. We had very little money and it was a really tough time and my drinking escalated again considerably. Yeah, to to the point that it became a real problem again. I was back thinking about AA, what was I going to do? How was I going to get out of it? And he was furious. He really just had enough of babysitting and picking up the pieces on a regular basis, I think. Okay. Well, listen, we might, might take a short break there and have some music and some announcements. This week we are featuring songs from First Nations album First Sounds Volume 6, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Like you're looking right through me Invisible, I feel invisible Like you don't even see
That first song was Invisible by Amy Hannon off the First Sounds Volume 6, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Victorian Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous, or Vicipar, are a group of alcoholics who are young in recovery and want to assist newly recovering alcoholics to stay sober. They do this by creating events throughout the year that strive to provide a safe place to go during high-risk times of the year, for example, around grand finals and New Year's Eve. A Vicky Park convention is held each year to help alcoholics stay sober by providing a full day of meetings and speakers, fun and fellowship. This year's Vicky Park event will be held on Saturday the 9th of October 2021 via Zoom. The event will be free and anyone can join any time. Check out the updated Vikipar website for the full program and links to the meeting on the day. The website is vikipar.org. Alan family groups also participate in Vikipar Convention to help families and friends of alcoholics cope with the effects of living with someone else who has a drinking problem. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. You're listening to the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today, I'm talking to Tula about recovery from drinking a drinking problem with the help of Smart Recovery. Um, so, Talula, before the break, we were talking about your early second marriage days mm-hmm. and how things were starting to get a bit difficult. So do you want to talk about, you know, what precipitated those difficulties and, and where that took you? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much, Bill. Um, so, yes, before, before the break, we had talked about um, my second husband, who actually was my partner at the time. Um, so we'd kind of got to a point where he was fed up. He'd had enough of the drinking. We'd been together about a year and a bit by then. And he later said to me that he was actually going to break up with me. But I'd been feeling sick all day and I decided to do a pregnancy test. And lo and behold, we were pregnant. Of course, I stopped drinking uh, through my pregnancy. But when my eldest son was born, uh, we had a very, very difficult birth. It was It was near fatal for both of us. And I didn't realise at the time, but I suffered from postnatal depression. So I uh, was very traumatised by the birth and I was I really didn't connect with my first son at all for many years. And at five months, I was absolutely ready to go back to work off maternity leave. And my drinking started to really escalate after that. So I think more than ever, the stress of a full-time job, My baby was five months old. I wasn't connecting with him. I didn't know why. And life in general just kind of tipped me back over the edge. So after yet another disastrous work Christmas event where my husband had to pick me up off the floor in front of everyone, I started to look into seeking help. And I was just really sick and tired of being sick and tired yet again. The sober movement in the UK at that time was really sort of ramping up. And I joined a group called Soberistas and a Facebook page called Club Soda. And I kind of found a tribe that I could relate to in terms of people the same age as me, um, a lot of working mums in the same sort of situation, doing the same thing, having the same struggles. And I really kind of felt like I wasn't alone. So that was really beneficial. So I think I was just desperate to moderate and be normal, but really for me the drunk messiness was never far away. So now we've moved into a different realm because I was at events, my husband would call constantly, where was I, why was I out so late, did I remember I had a child, I was a mother, I was a wife, and just the cycle began again and the more frustrated he became, the more I kind of rebelled, I guess, And it it just sounds so selfish now that I think back on it. You know, we'd go through months and months of 
things being okay and then I'd have a completely horrendous drunken incident yet again. And I then fell pregnant with our second son and I stopped drinking straight away again. And uh, another nine months went past and everything was fine and I did another five-month maternity leave. And then I went back to work to a promotion, which meant a raise in money, a lot more travel. So I was traveling 10 days out of every month, which meant that I had access to business class lounges. I had access to free booze and as much as I wanted. And I also had the freedom to kind of do what I wanted. And that, I think, just completely escalated everything. In my mind, I was this sort of highfalutin corporate person doing my thing And actually, I was just becoming more and more of a raging alcoholic, to be honest. So what did work think? Essentially, I managed to hide it for the most part, I believe. Look, I think they knew that I had a problem. They didn't really, but because I was still high performing, they didn't really know what to do with me. So they just let me get on with it. And then my dad died in 2015. And I pretty much went back to work literally within the same week um, because I couldn't cope with the trauma of his death. And yeah, I just they were incredibly supportive actually. Yeah. I, I don't I don't even know how to explain it to be honest. I, I think I literally was just high performing enough to not get pulled up on it. Yeah. Was your partner concerned about your drinking and travel? Yeah, he was absolutely he, he was completely worried about it. He never knew how much I used to drink while I was away. I, I didn't do any drugs at all by, by the time I was 30, so that wasn't a problem. But my drinking just escalated and escalated. And I just kind of kidded myself that, you know, it was better wine and I just told myself just the most ridiculous, ridiculous amount of lies to give myself permission to continue doing it. Yeah. So did you get yourself in any trouble? Because it it is a difficult situation being drunk and in society. Yes, I did. Well, I, I got into all kinds of trouble. So these are not necessarily when I was with my husband. So actually, probably reflecting back on my 20s, I got a DUI and I lost my license for six months and it was for next day drinking. So I was so over the limit the next day that I got my license revoked for six months. I have spent a night in jail, unfortunately, where a policewoman tried to ask me how I was and I punched her. So they kept me in for my own safety. I unfortunately was date raped twice. And these are all really heavy hitting, horrible things. Nothing bad happened to me after after I met my husband, but that's mainly because he or somebody else was always there to pick me up off the floor and to make sure I was okay. Yeah, women are particularly vulnerable as drug users or problem drinkers. Yeah. Without someone to look after them. Totally. Yeah. So what about friends then? Did you have any friends at work who were concerned? Yes, I did. I had quite a few friends at work who were concerned and they did sort of talk to me about it more than once. But, you know, the problem is, is that when you go out for drinks with everyone, you're kind of all out there together. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, we've we've kitted ourselves into this culture that is allowed to go for after-work drinks and get blind because that's just what we do. And, again, I think it's very important that we start having those conversations around the normality of, of those approaches. Yeah, because it makes it difficult if somebody doesn't have a, a problem with alcohol, drinking with somebody who does, you don't appreciate the fact that, they're going to continue drinking when you stop. Totally, totally. And it doesn't matter if you stay or not, you know, the amount of times that I left in a bar by myself. And, I mean, I just think about it now. And I think my poor husband, because he always knew the friends that I was out with, and either they would put me in a cab and they'd ring him and say, look, we're sending her home. Or, you know, he would have to ring them and go, look, where are you guys? Do I need to come and pick her up? And it's just, you know in your 30s or 40s, putting that kind of responsibility on someone else is so incredibly selfish and immature. But I only see that now that I'm kind of in a better place. Yeah, it is, I guess, hindsight at that point. So what what were you thinking 
about yourself? Were you having misgivings about what was happening and your inability to cope? I hated myself. I absolutely hated myself. My anxiety rose to levels that I couldn't even comprehend. I had to go back on medication. I was going for counselling. And I just couldn't give it up. I just couldn't quite grasp the fact that this is what the problem was and that if I stopped drinking, it would just all go away. And, of course, it doesn't all go away, but you take the steps towards it. So I went back to AA again. I started trying various different medications. I went to hypnotherapy, but I went to hypnotherapy hungover. So, of course, when he opened up all of my childhood trauma, because I was so hungover, he wasn't able to close it again. And that meant that my drinking escalated all over again. Yeah, it's, again, hindsight is a fine thing. I would not have done things the same way. Yeah. So what about counsellors? My understanding is that most addicts or alcoholics, when they go to counselling, they don't tell them what they're really doing. So were you open and honest or were you traditional? I wasn't at first. In my 20s, I wasn't at all. Yep. Um, in my 30s, I was kind of half-half. And then in my 40s, I kind of went, you know what, what have I got to lose? I mean, I'm at rock bottom already. And what's interesting is I, I really sort of thought that my psychologist would be horrified. But actually, you know, they don't bat an eyelid because, A, they're trained to do that, and, B, they see all types coming through. So I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to have to tell the truth and stop lying to myself and, therefore, everyone else. Yeah. So how did that work out then? Could you do that and still drink? I tried. <laughs> I tried for many months. But, you know, Bill, I got to the point where I was hiding bottles. I was buying bottles and drinking them in the car so that my husband didn't know how much I'd drunk. I was taking extra bottles in the morning to work so that I could drop them in the bin at work so he wouldn't know how much I'd drunk. The lies just became so huge and so self-perpetuating that I couldn't keep it up. And I was so desperate to stop that I actually went to my doctor and I said, look, this is what I'm really doing to myself. And she said to me, well, I've been wondering how long it would take for us to have this conversation. So she knew, I mean, my bloods were out. You know, I was constantly unwell. I was constantly asking for anxiety medication. And every time she sort of brought up the alcohol, I would brush it off. And uh, yeah, she was amazing. Because she said to me, well, you know, how's the AA going? And I said, well, I'm not going. It doesn't resonate for me personally. And she said, well, you know, how's the hypnotherapy? And I said, well, that was $2,500 that I spent unwisely. And she said, oh, well, have you tried this group? And she introduced me to SMART. So can I just ask what it was about AA that you didn't click? Was there anything specific? I think it was because I went to an all-girls Catholic school and I really struggled with giving up my power to a higher power. Uh, yeah, I struggled with that part of it more than anything. Yeah. And also because in the work that I do in my other life, everything is around facts and statistics and logic and common sense. And I just couldn't grasp why a human couldn't get control of what they were doing and that it was just something that happened and we had to say, oh, well, c'est la vie. Yeah. And well, I just want to say, like, I don't discount any other programs. I think that they're amazing and they certainly work for other people, but it just unfortunately didn't work for me particularly. Yeah, we're all individuals. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a pretty crowded place if everybody went to AA. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So going to SMART then, what was your first impression? My first impression was, oh, my goodness, there's all these different addictions. How interesting. Did you find that helpful? Yes, very helpful. What was it about that? Was it the fact that you weren't terribly unique or what, what was it? Yeah, it definitely comes down to uniqueness. I think looking at other people battling themselves makes you realize that everyone's got their story and a lot of people turn to maladaptive behaviors to try to cope with what they're going through 
I think for me, I was very surprised because when I got there, there was a guy as young as 21 and he had XYZ addiction and right through to um, there was an older lady. She must have been in her sort of mid-70s and she had Y addiction and there was just everything in between. And I just found it very fascinating. And I also found the whole seven-day planning really interesting in terms of not thinking about things in the super, super, super long term. So for me, it was always about, well, you you can't drink forever and ever and ever again. And the fact that they also work in the moderation space. Moderation is not for me. It doesn't work. Um, but for people who can moderate, I think that's fantastic because not everyone wants to be completely abstinent. No. And, and some people can't. I mean, so there's food addicts who have to eat. So there are some things where moderation is important, but it's a matter of being able to stay away from the ones that really affect you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, so we might take another break there and uh, have some more music and announcements. Saviour of Love by Lil Lovesick off the first Sounds Volume 6 album. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant 
which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few of your lines. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And today I'm talking with Tallulah and we're talking about recovery from drinking problem with the help of Smart Recovery. So Tallulah, getting into Smart and realising that there were other people who had problems similar to yours and different, but they're all facing the same issue and that was living on a daily basis and addressing the problem. So what was the first thing that you started to do in SMART? I started to use a lot of the tools. So SMART has some amazing sort of modalities that you can look at around motivation, around sort of value propositions and cost-benefit analysis. And I really started to look at those tools and realised that those kind of fitted into my brain and they made sense to me. As I mentioned, I really loved the fact that it wasn't just about one addiction. I enjoyed the fact that there were people there that were walking away with a plan to only drink on XYZ days and only drink XYZ amount. I was pretty fascinated by that because I tried everything. I tried, you know, changing drinks, only drinking on days that end with blah, 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 uh, putting ice in my drinks. So it was interesting to sit and watch people try different methods and, you know, SMART encourages that. They encourage people to try different approaches because if what you're doing doesn't work, then obviously you've got to try a different way. So I, I really loved that about SMART. So how did things start to change for you? Bill, they didn't change too much for a couple of years because I was still determined to try and moderate. But I kept on going to my SMART meetings and every time I went, I just took a little bit more away from it. And then I started to get really interested in really the psychology around it and the cognitive behavior therapy that sort of underpins it. And I started to read more and more about it. And I became very interested professionally in it as well. So that kind of started to really change my own approach to how I showed up at meetings and really engaging more and, and listening to other people's stories more. And then in my time of moderation, on the 24th of January, 2020, I completely fell off the rails really, really badly. And my husband kicked me out of home. My children told me they didn't want to see me anymore if I carried on tr this ridiculous trying to moderate business. And I didn't have anywhere to go. And I didn't have anyone to turn to because I had upset people on a regular basis. And I had to go to my in-laws. And I just realized that if I followed the SMART method on a daily basis, that I could stop. And I told myself that there was no turning back and that this was my last ditch attempt because if I didn't, I was probably going to kill myself with alcohol. Yeah. Can I take you back to why you did that drinking session? Was there anything that triggered it? Yeah, definitely. I'd had to, I'd have some family from overseas come to stay and they'd stayed for six very long weeks. And it was just so full on and very busy and lots of family arguments. And I just got carried away. And it just, what started to happen was my tolerance raised, my habit loops formed, and I was just back into the cycle of drinking again. But it was down to drinking every day. And my drinking had never got that bad. It's funny what family can do. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> it, it was pretty horrendous, I have to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just obliterating it as much as I could. Yeah. So what did you do differently once that happened with SMART? What was the thing that you decided you had to do differently? I think I realised that my husband wasn't going to put up with it anymore. He'd put up with it for a good 12 or 13 years. My mum wasn't going to put up with it anymore because my mum lives with us. And my kids, you know, when I had my children saying to me, mum, please don't drink anymore, I just really, um, my eldest son said to me, why can't you be normal like the other mums? And it just made me feel sick to my stomach. And I realised that I couldn't be this sort of in my 40s drunk mother. Is that what I wanted for my children? You know, enough was enough. I could either continue down this horrible path or I could pull myself together. And those were my two options. There was no in-between. Yeah. So you had the tools from SMART to do that. And so how did you decide to stop drinking? Um, I didn't necessarily decide. Well, I did and I didn't. So um, my husband told me that if I didn't sort myself out, I couldn't come home. So I, it was either my kids or, or my drinking. That was my choice. And I chose my family. Yeah. So then what specific tools in the smart toolbox did you use to to help you do that? I think quite a few of the tools that I used were around self-motivation, really sort of looking at that cost-benefit analysis. Does this really work for me? Does it work for me as a, my family? A lot of the triggering type tools, you know, where is it that I'm getting tri triggered? What is it that's bothering me? All of those sort of tools. I actually then had the opportunity. So I'd been in the smart recovery space for a while and um, COVID hit actually. And the fact that we couldn't go anywhere at all was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because we went into lockdown and I had no access to alcohol because I couldn't bring it home and I couldn't go out and drink it. Yeah. So where were you at this point? By the time COVID hit, I was eight weeks sober. So I did a lot of work in the sort of, um, in the smart toolkits, there's the stages of change documentation and then a lot of change plan worksheets. So I had to do a lot of psychological work with my counsellor and she was great. We started to do a lot of trauma recovery work and I used that alongside the smart worksheets to kind of get myself to the next phase. And then, as I say, COVID hit and that kind of decided it for me. So did you find it difficult losing personal contact and having to access things online? Uh, not really, because in my other world, I spend a lot of time online and that's how I conducted my meetings with my team overseas. So it was quite easy for me to, to kind of pivot. The other thing was the sort of longer I found in my sobriety, the safer I felt in myself. I stopped, my anxiety slowed down. And then I was able to really sort of look at what it was that was causing me to drink so much. And one of the things was actually my job. It was so stressful that I had to come to a decision as to whether to stay in it or not. But in the meantime, I was still doing a lot of work around really the, the behavior and why we drink and understanding why people do what they do. So I was offered an opportunity to become a smart facilitator, having had that much sobriety up by then. Yeah, that, that's kind of been my journey. So I do some smart facilitation a couple of times a week, one face-to-face, -face, one online. And I just kind of live, eat and breathe the smart world now in, in terms of recovery. So how has becoming a facilitator helped you with your own recovery? I think it's around looking at other people's stories, understanding that all people come to SMART seeking that sort of help and that solution, and then looking at the very sensible, logical fact sheets and worksheets that can kind of help people to identify their behaviours, identify their triggers, put in place sort of methodologies, for instance, like HALTS. Are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you stressed? Are these reasons that are triggering the behaviours that you're turning to? or particularly around mental, mental health. So I'm very passionate about the mental health space and how our mental health, depending on 
where it's at can can again move us into a maladaptive behavioral state as well. Yeah, I think the mental health side is very much, I guess, under-identified that the concentration is on the the alcohol or the drugs rather than the the mental state. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's not just the alcohol and the drugs. So when I stopped drinking, I started other stuff. So it's it's just my all-consuming personality. So if I go op shopping, I will buy ridiculous amount of op shop stuff that I don't need. Sometimes it doesn't even fit me. Netflix, if I watch Netflix, I have to put things in place to stop me from watching series because I binge on series exactly the same way that I used to binge on alcohol. And that's interesting. It's been a very interesting journey around understanding myself and what triggers my maladaptive behaviour and and my own mental health because they're all hand in hand. Yeah. So have you ever thought of looking at your own childhood, given your grandparents' situation and I guess having a father who drank looking at your own recovery in in that way, apart from your your drinking? Yeah, definitely. So I've done a lot of work around the sort of childhood trauma space. There's an amazing author and and presenter by the name of Gabor Mate, and I listen to a lot of his podcasts and a lot of his work. And I do think that a lot of my behaviours come from various different traumas in my life. And I like to try not to think of them as traumas, actually. I just try to think of them as very, very large life lessons. And I think it's how we react to them that kind of puts us on whichever journey we're going to take. Yeah, I, I know, you know children of alcoholics often try to, to save people and it, it becomes a compulsive behaviour, getting involved with people to try and help them. Yeah, it's that enabling, isn't it, Bill? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's sort of an, an enabling uh, behaviour, yeah. You know what's really interesting is my husband stopped drinking with me last year in his final bid to kind of go, okay, are we going to hold our family together? Anyway, he stopped for six months and what was really interesting is both of us really started to excel and become very interested in other things outside of obviously because drinking is what we used to do together. Anyway, he started drinking again, not, not to the same excesses, which is fine because he can sort of put, you know, a bottle away. When, when it's still got a glass in it, where I never could. But we were talking the other day and he said to me, you know, what we have to remember is that we met as drinkers and drinking used to be our thing. So we would go out for dinners and drinks and spend the afternoon doing whatever, but it always was around the social aspect of alcohol. And he said to me, we just have to find things that we like to do now because that was our fun, that was our habit, that's what, you know, that's what interested us. And we still do all of those things. We just do them without the alcohol now. But what does interest me is that quite often he'll come home and go, oh, I need a drink. That was so stressful. And I think, wow, that's really interesting to kind of watch the pattern. Yeah, it's a behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, it's a repeated behaviour. Totally. The, the best thing for me is that my kids are so proud of me. And I do drink alcohol-free beer now and I'll have an alcohol-free wine and I'll only have one or two. There's a huge big discussion around whether that is uh, triggering or not. It's not for me anymore. If I had done it in my first year, it probably would have been. But my boys are just so, they're like, mum, you know, we're so proud of you. We're so proud that you don't drink. And that is really special to me. That That is my, that is just the biggest gift I could have given them. Yeah. Absolutely. It's um, plus it, it means that you're communicating with them. You have them in the, in your life, all, all those positive things that improve the situation. Totally, totally. You know, I just think the amount of hours that I lost with them, either being drunk or hungover or, you know, even when I was reading a story, I'd have a glass of wine there or I would think, oh, God, I just need to read them a chapter so that I can get away. And it's those little things because now, even now, they, you know, they, they're a bit older, but they still want a story. And I'll sit and I'll, I'll read a whole chapter rather than just kind of a paragraph, which is what I used to do. Yeah. Because yeah. I was just always thinking, oh, I need to get back to my drinking. Yeah, yeah, they're in, they're in the way, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So, yeah, 600 days today, Bill, and very appreciative. Yeah. 
never take it for granted ever. Congratulations. That's that's terrific. Thank you. <laughs> if anybody listening would like to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia, you can visit smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details of their meetings and contact information, or you can call them directly on 02 So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Tallulah of Smart Recovery Australia for joining us and sharing her Smart Recovery experience with us. Thanks, Tallulah. Thanks, Phil. It was lovely to speak with you. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous Convention uh, with some members of the Vicky Park Convention Committee. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we have Ngani Kolenka, uh, sung by Cindy Moody. Enjoy. Courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. your chance to tune in so come on come in live on thursdays 3 p.m 3cr 855 a.m you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au